0: So welcome to the Sport in History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week we're continuing our series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the B.S.S.H.'s Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR. And today I'm with the cricket writer Richard Parry. Hi Rich. Hi Jeff. Rich Parry left South Africa during his student years in the 1970s as a conscientious objector against the racist apartheid state and he completed his master's at Queen's University Canada, um, a master's which examined the role of Cecil Rhodes in the development of a segregated society on the Cape. His subsequent PhD at Queen's examined black worker resistance to colonial power in Rhodesia, as it was then. While working as a civil servant in the UK and for the OECD in Paris, he's continued to write history which combines his love of cricket with his established interest in resistance to colonialism in Southern Africa. Richard's paper at the seminar focused particularly on the history of African cricket on the Rand in the 1930s, a subject that is overlooked in traditional accounts of the game in South Africa which tend to focus on white minority cricket. So Rich, how did you first come to approach the story of African cricket on the round?
1: Thanks, Jeff. It's it's uh, quite a long story with a lot of divergent uh, strands to it. But essentially, as you suggested, the notion of cricket in South Africa is is generally seen as white cricket. And in the last 20 years, there's been a a school of historical writing which has tried to look at uh, the life and culture of the South African majority population outside the the nature of colonialism and apartheid. Mm. As far as cricket goes, uh, I initially came to the idea of, of looking at, at cricket and its historical significance through a, 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 a specific fact around the, uh, the question of Cecil Rhodes and his relationship with uh, with William Mint- Milton, who was his private secretary. Uh, Milton was not only Rhodes' private secretary responsible for putting in the first segregation legislation for the Cape, but he was also the captain of the South African cricket team. Mm. And this, this uh, what looked like coincidence of, of roles, uh, drew me down a track of looking at the relationship between sport and politics, and the nature of how South Africa and South African culture and resistance was developed in the context of, of sport itself. So I did some work on the 19th century, uh, cricket at the Cape in particular, uh, and then followed that up by looking at, at cricket in the context of various aspects of South Africa, given that South Africa is a patchwork of different communities, and different cultures, different ethnic ethnicities, uh, and and traditions, and the cricket itself uh, take, took root in a number of different areas. You know, Indians in Natal, Africans in the Eastern Province, uh, within the Cape Malay community and Cape community generally, uh, and also on the front. road. Mm. Uh, and it was on the so, I looked at the Vrededorst road specifically because. That was essentially the crucible of South Africa, the South African economy and indeed South African, the notion of South African society and apartheid, which is based fundamentally on a labour relationship.
0: For, for people who are not as familiar with South African history as mm. we are, can you explain briefly the significance of, of the Rand, as I, I call it? But, um, yes. As, as most people uh, in call the it. development <laughs> of South Africa as a colony because it really forms yes. the background to your chapter. Uh, it?
1: Yes it's it's uh, it's it's fundamental uh, the the Vitvatis Front or the RAD as everybody does call it <laughs> uh, was uh it was based on initial mineral discoveries discoveries of gold which were made in 1886 uh, and found on uh, found in enormous quantities larger than anywhere else in the world and, and led in fact to the, the Anglo Boer War, or the South African War, or whatever that has a number of different uh, yeah, different titles. Second War to. of Second War of Resistance, if you talk to uh, if you talk to Afrikaners, and the uh, the the itself uh, essentially became moved the locus of the uh, the the colonial uh, economy. Away from the coast and into the into the interior, the Witwatersrand is is uh, is more than a thousand miles from from the coast, yeah. uh, and it br- it drew it drew capital, it drew investment, and it drew massive amounts of immigration very very quickly yeah. into the uh, into this crucible of the rand, and the the rand itself was was fundamental not just for investors and, and white miners and and uh, refugees and immigrants and, and uh, the large number of people who, who, who poured into into the region in the 1890s and thereafter, but also relied fundamentally on a particular kind of labor relationship. Because of the mining process and because the gold was very difficult to get hold of easily uh, through uh, through normal gold mining techniques, uh, it mines were mines were deep level we needed in other words to go miners needed to go at least two kilometers or deeper below the surface to get at those uh, those the seams vanishing seams of gold very rich but very hard to to extract in order to do that the the only way was to use or at least a significant way was to use extremely cheap migrant labor and by cheap migrant labor we mean Africans, l- Africans in, the sub, in the subcontinent who would be prepared or w- who could be coerced into coming to work on the mines for, for low wages uh, in order to satisfy tax demands at home, but who wouldn't necessarily need the cost of their upkeep because they would live on land in the reserves and they would spend some of their time working on the mines and yeah. then go back home. So they were the cheapest possible source of labour. Yeah. So that was the, the economics of it. But in order to do in order to have that, you had to have an intermediary group who managed and controlled that process. Yeah. And this the chapter is focused essentially on that intermediary yeah.
0: group. So you're looking at this pool of labour, which is migratory, um, comes into work and then goes back. But also you are looking at the the kind of the, the leadership people of that African workforce who are kind of Yes. And they're the key figures, aren't they? Yes, you?
1: I'm looking at uh, what I'm looking at is a kind of a, 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 an African group of intermediaries yeah. who are there like a labor aristocracy, yeah. who don't do the mining, but who, who act as, as uh, malabanas, as yeah. they're called. So they act as controllers, they do the, the HR stuff. Yeah. they they make sure the recruitment processes work uh, we have indunas who control the miners underground we have police we have a, a whole subcategory of africans educated coming from generally from cape mission stations uh cape or or, or the vicinity mission stations, where they learned to play where, cricket where they had learned cricket yeah. where they had, yeah. where cricket had been a, a fundamental element in the curriculum exactly yeah because cricket was always, it had always been a key element of, of mission education. It had been part of this idea of, of, uh, of, of Cape Liberalism, whereby if you learn to essentially play cricket and behave like a, like a white man, yeah. then you, w- you may be recognised as such, and that was always the hope. Yeah. that 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 the colonial regime would move on even it was always a chimera, though wasn 't it? It, it, was was like it? it could it never be you could quite white enough exactly yeah. you' you'd never in the end in the end, there was never any realistic chance of that yeah. of that happening because for good economic reasons yeah. um. Yeah. So, going back to the RAND, uh, what we had then was we had a, a class, which, is, which you could define in a number of different ways, um, who were essentially responsible for maintaining uh, the system as it operated. You had white miners as well, the white miners were overseers, they were responsible for making sure that things happened okay underground. They were responsible for making sure that their workforce produced enough Gold, or, or enough, indeed, enough, uh, enough rock from which gold would be extracted on any particular shift, and they would be ca- paid accordingly. And of course, their role was particularly brutal because they would spend their time trying to ensure that these guys worked absolutely as much as possible at the maximum possible speed in horrific conditions. Yeah. Um, they also, there was a, a management layer in the mine, which was also white. Uh, of course, and which, uh, which was responsible essentially for making sure that the numbers worked and at the end of the day, of course, was responsible for the shareholders. But the key, the key components were this, this intermediate group, if you like, uh, who were responsible again for that relationship between the white, the white mine and the African workforce. And there was a symbiotic relationship between them and the African workforce. Yeah. Um,
0: so we've moved on because it was getting a little bit noisy in the, uh, the back garden of the Great Northern Railway Tavern where we are at the moment um, but thanks to, thanks to the uh, manager here she's allowed us to come upstairs to the function room, uh, I'll put a little advert in for the GNRT, the function room is very nice <laughs> and it's nice and quiet at the moment um, but Rich was talking about the structure of labour in, in the mines on the rand um, and what I'm interested in is the role that sport plays. Um, in the efforts of colonial authorities and mine owners to use sport as a means of social control. But also, paradoxically, this opens up opportunities for leaders in the African community to kind of resist uh, being being told what to do, essentially, by those mine owners and by the colonial authorities. And and something that you talk about um, in your paper and also in a chapter in a book that we'll come to talk about later on is is something called the Bonato Cup. can you tell us what the Bonato Cup was, what, it, what its intention was, and what effects it had on the lives of these men, mostly men, who were working on the Rand in, in that time?
1: Yes, yeah. of course, <laughs> yes. It, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting question because it's, it's partly about the historical way in which uh, social control developed over a considerable period of mm. time. The Bonotto Cup actually was first presented in 1897 right. in Kimberley. And Kimberley was uh, the, if you like, the precursor to the diamond, to the gold mines mm. uh, in the, on, the, on the Rand. Kimberley was the, the basis of the diamond mines and the diamond industry was where Cecil Rhodes made his money and where the commercial beer. development yep. really began in the Cape. Um, so the Bonotto Cup was presented to uh, black players who played a great deal of cricket in Kimberley, and in fact were as good as white players were at that time, and in fact played against them on a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were, when I say black players, I mean African players. I mean, but I also mean coloured players, Malay players, uh, people of Indian origin, and so on. Yeah. So it was, it was a non-ethnically driven uh, cricketing uh, setup. There were, there were more than a dozen teams made up from the community who played cricket on a, on a regular basis. And the Banate Cup was there as, as a, a, a token from the mining industry, essentially to try and make sure that they had some control over, over the leisure time yeah. of, of Africans in the, in the community, in the town. Uh, but I don't mean specifically the minors, as such, again, we're talking about this, this kind of intermediary class, the class who'd been to mission school and who acted as interpreters, and who acted uh, uh, as Sol Plyke did, the uh, famous South African uh, first head of the ANC and so on. Um, and those individuals were, were very much imbued with mission culture, as we suggested, imbued with the notion of cricket. And therefore, by the 1890s, cricket was already a major component of of culture within Kimberley. Mm. Uh, So the Bonato Cup was presented by David Harris, who was chairman of Chamber of Mines at that point. Uh, It was named after Barney Bonato, who had died a couple of months earlier. Uh, He'd fallen off off the back of a ship on his way to England uh, under suspicious circumstances. As a character, he was very much a kind of Robert Maxwell and he yeah. probably fell into the water in a very similar way. Uh, he used to wear very large check shoo- suits and uh, spent a lot of time consorting with uh, ladies of ill repute in the cricketing uh, man? Kimberley uh, context. <laughs> no, he wasn't a cricketing man. Yeah. He didn't like cricket. Yeah. Uh, he thought cricket was, was both incomprehensible uh, and a total waste of time. Uh, and he also didn't like Africans either yeah. unless they were actually doing some proper work. Yeah. and playing cricket certainly didn't involve doing really proper work so it was per- totally inappropriately named but surprisingly the badatta cup did become a very much a a, a talisman of non-racial sport within within southern africa and maintained the Bodato cup was the, the basis of a competition which ran through from the late 1890s uh, again, uh, and back after the Boer War, right through into the 1920s, mm. uh, where non-ethnically divided teams who would represent geographical locations uh, would play, come together and play the tournament uh, uh, on, a, on a yearly or by-year basis. Uh, of course, lots of years were missed, it was hard to organise. Uh, white Cricket had the same problem, it's a big place and it's hard yeah, to get it's a trade distances
0: in South Africa. I think sometimes it's something that British people find hard to comprehend.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It can take several days to get, even by train, yeah. to get from one place to another. Uh, and, and given that, that people's disposable income is small and time is short, it's difficult to, uh, to have competitions of that kind. Nonetheless, they managed it, uh, if not on a regular basis, on a relatively consistent basis over the period. Mm. And this lasted until the nineteen uh, until the nineteen twenties, when partly as a, partly as a result of of government policy uh, with regard to ethnicity and the attempt in a sort of proto-apartheid way to divide up uh, South Africans into very specific ethnic groups, um, the the cricket establishment, as a, which had resisted this for a long time, uh, started to divide up by ethnicity in a sense, by, in other words, between Africans or Coloureds and Malays. Yeah, and that was where the schism first started, between Coloureds and Malays and then Indians in the late 1920s and early 1930s.
0: This is something that people who are familiar with Indian cricket history will will know something about as well yeah. is the way in which Indian cricket was divided by yes. community, wasn't it? Uh, but in South yeah. Africa, you have this kind of tension between that communalism and this non-racial Yes. Um, ideal. Don't yes. You? Yes, you
1: do. Um, and the uh, except that from a, a, the, in South Africa that was resisted from the start as far mm. as it, as far as possible. Uh, in the in in the Indian context, it was very much built into the framework. So, so you had the communalism yeah. relating to the, and the Parsis and the, and, yeah. whatever, and the Hindus and whatever, and the European whites. And it was only yeah. in the 40s and 50s that, that this began to change. In South Africa, they resisted that particular kind of uh, kind of breakdown for some time until finally in the uh, in the late 20s, early 30s we began cricket began in the black community began to be divided on, on on essentially on racial grounds
0: and this is when you have cricket really taking off on the rand isn't it it's That's between right. the wars which is what your chapter really focuses on yes. and what i liked about your your chapter your paper was how you tied together the sort of social and political significance of cricket with some really eye-opening descriptions of the conditions uh, that the players had to cope yeah. with and and it, this is something that anybody's played cricket. W- reading uh, your mm. description of the grounds that they were playing mm. with, the equipment, or the can you tell us some more about that? I mean, how d- how did cricket compare between the you know the minority white community mm. in South Africa with what these guys were trying to do? Um, how what did they have to do just to get to get a game together?
1: Mm. Yes, uh, the the essence of the situation, of course, is that. Uh, that the the black community to begin with or the African community if you like are are subject to a whole number of rules and regulations Mm. about where they can be through the uh, with regards to the parcel. laws they have to be they have to have permission to be in any particular place at any particular time if they haven't got it they're in trouble.
0: Then you literally they need a piece of paper Uh, literally they need
1: need a piece of paper signed by obviously a a, a white person Mm. in control who will uh, to be allowed to be there. Uh, secondly, they need to make sure that, that, in order to have that piece of paper, and so that the tax has been paid uh, on a monthly basis or whatever, so that they're up to date with, with regard to that. Um, thirdly, they're struggling with resources anyway, because wages for Africans for miners are are obviously extremely low we're talking about cheap migrant labor but even for this permanent settled class if you like uh, they are the the wages are still pretty low so so resources are pretty thin um, and then of course you have the question of where they can play mm. so the only areas that are available I mean given that we have a, a we have thousands of uh, of new immigrants coming into the Rand on a weekly basis, it's a, it's a huge, uh, it's 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 all through this period, uh, the population the population grows exponentially, from nineteen between nineteen thirty and about nineteen forty eight, uh, it more than doubles from four hundred thousand to close to eight hundred thousand yeah. uh, of that whole area. So so ground is at a real premium. Just finding a place to play is at a real premium. Um, so they're, uh, they're essentially the, the grounds they have to find or are, are, are mine, uh, mine tips or are are slag heaps are, yeah. are the grounds that uh, uh, mine dubs as they, as they call them. So they have to they're essentially hills of rock that have been from which gold has been extracted and dumped. Yeah. Uh, they're not usable for anything else Uh, so that's the only way you can use them to uh, you can you can you can find a place to play cricket so of course they have to be leveled by hand because there's no machinery available to these guys they have to level them uh, to turn them into uh, flattish stone grounds of gravel and stone Uh, and then, and then find some kind of mat or whatever to pitch on to play on that challenging strip. Then, yeah, <laughs> pretty challenging. A bit of bounce. As if, a batsman. If it's yeah. just short of a length, <laughs> you could lose an eyebrow. Or key. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely, it's very, very hard to play cricket on. Very hard to, uh, very hard to drive on. But uh, yeah. particularly, no, the, no sliding the stops in the field. No, absolutely. So no, uh, so no nice grass, grassy, verdant green. Uh, fields which of course were available to the whites mm-hmm. who while they didn't play on turf wickets for different very different political yeah. reasons <laughs> uh, nonetheless um, they they were verdant grounds they were, were almost English in their, in their nature yeah. so this is the the extreme opposite to to uh, to this uh, and of course the uh, of course the fact that the grounds were as in perfect condition as they were was down to the fact that there were black workers who were responsible in uh, for keeping the grounds absolutely pristine? So
0: it kind of shows the love of the game that they had, though, doesn't it? That they yeah. were willing after doing, quite quite, yeah. you know, quite low-paid hard work yes. to, to to use their leisure time to. It must have meant a lot to them.
1: It certainly it certainly did. And and one of the uh, one of the real sort of key things that you find in looking at this period is is just how committed they were to cricket mm. and to not only the love of the game but the nature of the game and and what what cricket did with regards to building a community mm. uh, and, and building a, a, you know their ethos such as it was 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 in, in cultural terms had a very at a such a strong cricket component mm. in it cricket was was the significant sport um, there was of course the Africans who the migrant labour population, were more interested in football, yeah, so there was a divergence in terms of sport between the cricket side and the and the and the football side. Uh, and of course, football's cheaper and easier. Uh, but the people who were committed to cricket were committed in a in a big way. Yeah. Um, it did happen that by of course and and one of the questions, one of the points you you mentioned was about the, the mining industry and the municipality trying to developed social control in the ran- on the RAND at the time. And they did, they did create a, uh, a, a cricket pitch at the, uh, the Bantu Men's Sports Club, as it was known, which opened in 1931, mm. which was the beginning of a kind of renaissance of cricket on the, on the RAND. And the significant uh, issue about the Bantu Men's Sports Club was that uh, that provided a, an opportunity for Africans of that s- class, if you like, to to take part in the context of a of a community, but also allowed a significant amount of social control. But there are two different kinds of social control going on in here. Uh, you've got the mines and what the mines want and their social control, and you've got the municipality and what the municipality wants. And yeah. the, the municipality and the mines are not necessarily always on the same wavelength. So the Buntubed Social Club, which is a municipal endeavour is not always what the minds are looking for and there's a great deal of, 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 of uh, antagonism between the two who, to c- who were both looking to control African leisure time yeah. but in different ways yeah. and that's quite an interesting component of this.
0: What you bring out I think is the way in which um, cricket um, acts as a kind of a, a stage for, uh, for the players to kind of become significant figures in their local community, doesn't yes. it? Not just in their local community, but almost on a national scale as well. Oh, yes. And there's some really big personalities that you talk about in your writing, and I'm really interested in this cricketer, uh, Frank Roro, I'm sure I've said that very badly in my English accent, <laughs> um, but Roro was belatedly recognised as one of the 10 greatest South African cricketers of the 20th century in to- 2005, and sort of reading about his feats of batman- batsmanship mm. in, in, uh, in, your, uh, in your work, um, really it amazed me what he did. Can you tell, tell us some more about the significance of him as a player in... Um, African cricket and non European cricket in the 20th century?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Frank, I mean, the actual pronunciation of his <laughs> name is something like Frank Okay, but I, I'm not very good at the ho-ho sound yeah. either. So, uh, which is which is it's not my native tongue either. Yeah. So I'll stick with Frank Roro for now, okay. just to yeah. uh, just for the sake of this. It's but spelled, I do beg yeah. his I do yeah. beg his, his uh, yeah. apologies for my yeah. mispronunciation. For as listeners,
0: well. it's spelled R O R O. Correct. Yeah, like That's a roll on roll off
1: ferry. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Frank uh, Frank was born in in Kimberley in about 1911. Uh, went to a school in Kimberley. Uh, which was of whom the headmaster was was somebody called Hamilton Macsar, who was a, a key figure in the development of cricket first of all in uh, in the Kimberley area in the diamond mines and i sort of suggested that cricket grew from the diamond mines and was kind of transplanted to the rand uh, in in the uh, in the twenties and, and early thirties hamilton Hamilton Massiza turned up on the mines. Uh, and recruited Frank Grohl as, uh, as, as a. As a uh, I, I'm not. It's unclear of exactly what his role was, uh, but his role appears to be something in 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 uh, in, in personnel. Mm-hmm. He's involved in, in uh, he's involved in, in the statistical side of, of uh, labour and, and keeping track of labour in the in the on on one of the mines, and in fact he moves across from a, uh, one mine to another. Um, but he's essentially he's a semi-professional cricketer. Yeah, the, uh, he's not the only one recruited for being a because of his cricketing skills. There are a number of others. Uh, Philip Wundley, as a fast bowler, is another one, and there are, there are several others. Um, but clearly, there's some competition between the minds and the minds actually want to produce quite good teams. Mm. So it's not entirely just about uh, the uh, the individuals, um, the individuals themselves. They're t- they're playing within a context, and and part of it is to c- it brings us back to the question you asked around leadership, mm. and what the uh, what these people do. And I'll say a bit more about Fred in a second. But what what the uh, what this class essentially does is it finds a channel whereby it can take community leadership and and essentially, well, as you suggested, make make a name for itself, both within the community and more wider afield in the Southern African context, using sport to do this. And one has to remember the the vital fact behind that, which is that black South Africans do not have a political role of any kind. There is no vote. They are not able to stand for any kind of elected body. There is no engagement on a political level in the 1930s with, with black South Africans. Consequently, this is the only shot they have at this. In order to have a, to, to lead the community, there are no, this is essentially political, because there is no politics. So cricket and, and other institutions, but cricket in particular becomes political in mm. that way. Mm. So people like uh like, like Frank Roro, uh, like Sol Sononi, mm. Uh, and, and like a number of other uh, other black South Africans who are playing cricket, use the opportunity essentially to form themselves into a, a leadership group. Yeah. Um, maybe a word about uh, just a word more about Frank Crocker and yeah, his, yeah, his achievements. Yeah. yeah. Um, he uh, as I've suggested um, you're essentially you're playing on a minefield quite literally so uh, <laughs> getting runs is not that easy yeah so for Frank uh, Frank's achievements are, are stated legendarily to be uh, he's, he's said to have scored more than a hundred centuries in league cricket uh, he's he, uh, at, at, at an average of over a hundred uh, which is Bradman-esque to yeah. say the least and yeah. indeed from what I can see Having gone through all the scores that I can find that are available in the newspapers, uh, and, but they're not complete. Um, what I can see is it's slightly overstating his case. Nonetheless, he's clearly Bradman-esque in the sense that he's head and shoulders better yeah. than anybody else. I
0: think this is the thing: is that you can see what the other people were getting, yeah. and he is—he's yeah, right he's, up there. He's, he's away from everybody. He—he
1: he, he he? He is. Yeah. He is, and he certainly scored one triple hundred. Uh, a, a, a number of double hundreds uh, and a lot of centuries yeah. playing on pitches which are dodgy as hell yeah. know, which are frankly yeah. almost impossible to to, to bat on um, he, he the other thing about Frank is his longevity uh, he played through to uh, the early 1950s he played when he was 43 he captained the Transvaal Bantu or African 11 uh, in the first tournament which brought together the various ethnic groups and, uh, in 1951 and then became, was the beginning of the sack process and came into m- more modern Southern African cricket. Uh, so he was cricket. a transitional figure
0: almost. He was a transitional
1: yeah. figure in a sense and, uh, or, uh, and he, uh, he was the first player to score 100, in fact he scored the only 100 in that competition. Yeah. Uh, at, at, at that stage there were a number of players playing in that uh, who then I mean Dolavira played the following year yeah so he's kind of you know it's almost almost Aurora and then Dolivera that's a good transition started. actually because yeah, I was going to
0: come to Dolivera because yeah. uh, the, the paper that you gave us at the IHR was based on a chapter that you having a book have in a book yes um, a book that you co-edited with uh, Bruce Murray and John T Winch yeah Called Cricket and Society in South Africa, nineteen ten to nineteen seventy one, and one of the key chapters in that book is a chapter about Dolovera and about the Dolovera Affair, which even people who are not cricket fans might have some idea of, of what the Dolovera Affair was. Um, but what I'm kind of interested in is the is something that a previous uh, contributor to this um, to this podcast uh, kind of talked about was the women's Aspects to mm. the Dolaviera affair, but can you sort of talk to us about what the book tells us about the Dolaviera affair before maybe talking about what Raph brought to the table when she when she was writing mm. um, for that book?
1: Yes, uh, the the Dolavira affair itself, of course, has been the subject of of, of billions and billions of, of words. Yeah, uh, not only at the time but but subsequently as well. And the the issue around the Dolaviera question has been essentially whether this was a stitch up on the part of the MCC or whether this was simply South African government mm. intransigence mm. and who was who was to blame here for this particular Everyone. debacle <laughs> and I think that's pretty well yeah. the answer is yeah. that it was uh, that it was everybody to blame um, it's not uh, it's, it's not absolutely clear uh, the extent to which the MCC were to blame but it's certainly clear that they knew what they were doing when they didn't select him initially mm. uh, which was the essence of the the problem and then of course the, when they did then subsequently select him because they were they were left without any opportunity to do anything else all of the other potential replacements uh, had dropped out for other reasons uh, once tom cartwright had been injured that they then had to effectively select him uh, what that said was the uh, to the South Africans was that the uh, you know you as Foster said Jolly John Forster said at the time uh, you know you're not the uh, you're not the MCC you're the external you're the external arm of the anti-apartheid movement yeah so that was uh, their point of view now what Bruce Murray does in his his chapter in the book is look at this evidence again and see throw some light on some of the significant issues involved in this. Initially, when Dolavira wasn't chosen, he'd been promised support by Colin Cowdery uh, to, to be on the tour. He mm. was he, given the indication that Cowdery would support him. Cowdery was the captain of the team at that Caldry time. Cowdery was he? the captain of the team yeah. and on the selection committee, yeah. chaired by Doug Insull. Uh, in fact, Cowdery didn't support him. Uh, and the next day, Cowdery's wife uh, sent Dolivira flowers. Right. So that gave you some sort of indication of. of the degree of I wouldn't like to say cowardice, but certainly complicit, complicity that there might be in this uh, in, yeah. between, uh, in, the, in, the, in this particular engagement. It's so, very Bruce Murray, en- very I English think, way of dealing with a it s- is. difficult social situation. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> yeah. it is, it is, it's, it's, uh, it's very much of what people of that class would do. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Dolaviera, of course, didn't come from that class. And when really his wife received the flowers. She was more than taken aback. that. uh, This should have been the way that she would be dealt with. And I don't think she actually wrote a thank you note for the flowers. Shocking (laughs) behaviour. So, uh, so, so Bruce. Bruce looks at this. um, Frankly, I think there wasn't. There's not too much more to say on that Mm. chain of events. I think Bruce has pretty well nailed it now. uh, Given the books we had, not only this is the definitive version. I'd say. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in in in, or a good in, 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 in yeah in Peter Oborne's work as well, mm. of course, in, in his uh, his piece on Dolby. He adds, I think he takes he takes Peter Oborne a little bit further. I think that's where we are. Yeah.
0: Um, and then the effect on the women's game, because this is something yes, that which is the, which I think is a really interesting yes. facet of
1: the book. Is um, yes. Is. The, the women are also supposed to tour South Africa yes. or at least play a game. Now, Absolutely, that's, that's right. And, uh, and Raph Nicholson's uh, really, uh, really important chapter in this book, uh, looking at women's cricket and the structure of women's cricket and the relationship to the Dola Affair, looks at how, uh, first of all, as you say, in the, 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 the same year, 1968, uh, women, the, the English women's team were supposed to stop off uh, in South Africa, uh, yeah. on the way to uh, on the way to a tour in Australia, and uh, that was uh, play uh, play a couple of a couple of tests in that. It hadn't been since 1960, so it had been a long time it's coming. A big thing. It yeah. had been a rea- it was a really big thing, it had been a long time coming. Uh, they didn't come, uh, and they didn't come not because of the the same quite the same degree of political shenanigans that went on with the MCC. Be, but because the English, uh, the English Women's Cricket Association, the Women's Cricket Association at the time, were um, unable, were unable to take independent decisions because they were responsible, they, sorry, because they were reliant on on funding, mm. on, uh, on on funding from the state, and therefore they could be much more easily leaned on, yeah. and clearly they were.
0: So the government was actually more. Um, strict about, yeah. about the MCC South Africa than MCC they, they
1: couldn't they couldn't twist the MCC's arm with regard to money yeah they didn't fund the MCC the, 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 the MCC, got MCC had money. more than yeah. enough yeah more than enough yeah. and, and it uh, was a real l- estate and whatever yeah. to, uh, was it a Labour government in 68 it, it was yeah. yes it was dead as actually yeah. yeah so there was uh, to the extent to which they were lent upon and the extent to which it was just pre- uh, uh, yeah. is is a little unclear um, and it's, it's the record is a little bit fuzzy on that, but it's a very important statement of the fact that women's cricket is different, but significant yeah. and has a real impact on, certainly in Southern Africa, on what's going on with regard to cricketing development. The, the other point, of course, about, about which, which RAF makes very well, I think, is that uh, that wasn't the last tour to South Africa. Um, the last tour to South Africa was in 1972 by the New Zealanders Uh so women's cricket actually carried on into the early 70s in men's cricket ended in 69 70 with the Australian tour Uh, and then by 70 71 2 was cancelled and so on but the New Zealanders were there in 1972 playing women's cricket and women were involved in in the uh, in the international cricket community well after that mm-hmm. and in fact played in international teams and so on, although they weren't any tourists to South Africa. Yeah. So women's cricket has a different trajectory and a different political kind of imperative here, but it's a very useful it's a really useful counterpoint to, to where yeah. we are with men's cricket potential PhD um,
0: out there for, for any researchers listening to yeah. this about international women's cricket I would say absolutely
1: absolutely um, from a number of diff- there are, it's a comp- it's a very open field there are a lot of different things one can do yeah uh, with regard to uh, ethnicity and colonialism and women's cricket it yeah be, uh, it would be great so this
0: this book was volume 2 in a history of South African cricket in which you've been involved mm-hmm. um, volume 1 dealt with kind of South African cricket from it's beginning uh, in the mid to late nineteenth century up to the First World War. So, how did you become involved with the project? How did it how did it start off? Because, as a disclaimer, I also have a chapter in each of these books, and it's quite a random assemblage of writers. So, where where did where was the starting point for this kind of new history of South African cricket?
1: The main starting point was that uh that there have been work done independently by a number of people on early south african cricket um first of all andre Udendal and, and chris chris merritt uh and and one or two others uh, Gulam ghulam and and uh ashwin desai and others had worked on in the early 2000s on black cricket in in south africa as a sort of you know, looking at it from slightly different perspectives, but looking at at, uh, at the significance of it, um, but had done so in quite a uh, in in a, in, a, in a the context of less of a of a social history and more of a kind of cricket-focused approach uh, to this, and it come up with a number of really important and mm. significant insights. Uh, I've been doing some work. Along with uh, John T in different, uh, different areas and, and one or two others, notably Bernard Hall, uh, in the late 90s. Uh, and I was focused on Crom on, uh, Hendricks, the fast bowler in the 1890s, who mm. Rhodes vetoed from touring England. Notorious kind of the, the, first the, the real beginning of segregation. Of, yeah, yeah, Not yeah. only segregation in sport, but formal legal segregation in South Africa. It's so the yeah. first starting point for that, key moment. So I'd been looking at that. Uh, John T. had been looking at some, something, uh, something similar on that, uh, and, and indeed on this whole question of roads. And, and because I'd, as I, as I mentioned earlier, because I looked at roads and the origins of segregation uh, when I first started getting into to history many years ago, uh, which was based on the fact that I was here, there I was living under apartheid as a white South African. I, needed to fig- I wanted to figure out what the hell this was about. How did we get here? Yeah. How did, what were the origins of all of this nonsense? How, did, how, could, how could this have happened? A bit like people talk about Brexit no. yeah. but, but, <laughs> you now. Ah, the V word. <laughs> oh, sorry, I had to say it before you did. It was kind of Brexit bingo. Yeah. But, but, the, the, uh, <laughs> the, but the point was that, that uh, that's what I wanted to find out. Yeah. So I looked at roads and, and discovered essentially the Glenn, Glenn Gray Act and the origi- uh, how the origins of segregation began. Uh, William Milton and the crickets. Uh, and then um, John T and I got together, uh, along with, with uh, a lo- along with um, one or two others, Bernard Hall, and then one or two others, and we and we formed a, a small group, and others joined, including you. Yeah, uh, uh, very provided very significant input into putting together what then became a became a volume. But the the, the notion behind it was twofold. One is that. Uh, what's really needed is a history of of sport which recognizes all communities and Mm. which recognizes the significance of of particularly black sport in Southern Africa. That's the first thing. The second is that that sport is a lens through which political process and social process can be viewed. So by looking at sport, you're looking at something more than sport. You're looking at the history of South Africa you're looking at how all of this came together because the Hendricks thing and so much else of this actually relates directly to political process the people who are running cricket are almost always people who have political power and political engagement financial power as well absolutely absolutely so and even when it comes to things like when when looks at it from the the African side if you like from the from the side of the 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 colonized cricket is the cricket is the means where they're able to exert leadership as I suggested earlier on mm. Iran where they could exert leadership and this is of course I mean it goes back into the 1890s it's not uh, it's not just happened doesn't just happen on the mines. it happens throughout the period because their political options are, are, are being cut off at the knees because they have no real place to go politically cricket becomes extremely significant
0: that's what I like about the latest volume is that it's got chapters not just your chapter about um, African cricketers but there's also a chapter about Indian cricket um, in South Africa women's cricket and Afrikaners as well and uh, what happens with Afrikaners lots of them playing in the 19th century and then they you know disappear but now they're resurgent um, in South African cricket so uh, my, my final question is, is there a plan for volume three? So this book, second book, takes <laughs> us up to sort of 69 to 71. Uh, is there going to be another... Are
1: you going to round off the century it's, for us or? <laughs> Well, it's, 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 very, uh, it's, it's very tempting. Um, there are, I mean, one arguably, there are two more volumes. Arguably, you would, you would take one through to, uh, to the uh, early 1990s. And then a volume. Three yeah. So the three, apartheid. Three, years, And so then, then that's right. uh, And then majority rule. So that, arguably, yeah. that's what one might do. Um, I would be. Uh, I'm, I'm open to the possibility of doing this. I don't have mm-hmm. a formal plan. Yeah. Uh, if anybody's interested in working on this, this, this team, is partly be, uh, what this question is about. To, yeah, yeah. I'd be very happy to, to discuss it. Uh, there are one or two people who've mentioned this as a possibility, and are interested. Yeah. Uh, I would. I would be interested. Um, uh, but you know it's it's uh, it's it would be a it would be a big project and of course we would also need strong input from from south africa itself yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. but the good thing about it is that the these uh, these earlier works we've had to rely very much on on uh, printed sources published sources um, primarily newspapers Mm. Uh, which have been which are very rich and indeed the stuff on the rand is our uh, uh, newspapers like uh, Umtelitete, uh African newspapers which have proved a rich source of, of information but now uh, we couldn't f- we couldn't find, I couldn't find anybody who actually could talk about Frank Rockhold specifically, right. yeah. um, I hadn't, uh, uh, nobody had actually met him um, I haven't found anybody who really knows any of the other key characters in this but looking at, at, in terms of volume three, of course, they're all still around. Yeah, yeah. So it's possible to get a much better sense of, of where this is. Yeah. But of course, as you get closer to date, it becomes a hugely political project. Yeah. It's all about what's where South Africa is and where it's going. And that's a big, big question. But
0: it could be, it could be a really interesting book. It could be, uh, a, it could be an interesting so book. So if there are, reasons. yeah, if there are researchers out there who are, Kind of looking at contemporary cricket or cricket um, in the last sort of forty to fifty years. Yes. Yeah, get in touch and uh, let's see if we could if we could get Volume Three together. Yes, well, and Volume Four as well. <laughs> um, well, thanks for sharing uh, your research with me today, Rich. Really enjoyed talking to you. Um, if you'd like to see details, the details of Rich's work, uh, you can find it on our webpage uh, for the podcast and in the podcast description on iTunes, and. If you're you're doing research on sport or leisure history and you think that it would be suitable for the seminar series that we have at the IHR, we are looking for speakers for the 2019-2020 academic year now. So do get in touch with us via the BSSH website which is sportinhistory.org or tweet us at the BSSH's account which you can find by looking for the British Society of Sports History. Um, and that's all for this episode Um, so until next time it's goodbye from both of
1: us goodbye thanks a lot Jeff goodbye